Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. You know, most businesses I see out there tend to focus their products and services on either the residential, corporate, or government sectors. But there is another sector known as the civil or not-for-profit sector. And, and it's interesting because this area tends to get overlooked as, as, I guess, a sector of the market that has very little money or, you know, really is a kind of low innovation space. But our latest guest, Cheryl Conti, saw the potential. Now, in the United States, nonprofits spend around $800 billion a year. It's a massive market. And frankly, the scale might be a bit different, but it's really no different from a trend in Australia, making up about 10% of the national workforce and employing over a million people. Now, in an overlooked sector, Cheryl was an overlooked entrepreneur. As a woman of color leading a tech company, she was already creating a unique story. But most people don't realize that unless you fit the stereotypical profile for investors, it's up to 10 times harder to get the financial backing you need to grow. Well, this was certainly the experience Cheryl had with her company, Attentively, who eventually sold to Blackboard, which is a NASDAQ-listed software company. You know, this is an inspiring story, and you're going to learn what strategies Cheryl deployed to overcome adversity and achieve a successful exit. This is Cheryl Conti. Hey, Cheryl, welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me. My absolute pleasure. I've, uh, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to talking to you and, and sharing a little of your story. I, I know there'll be lots of people listening who, who will just get so much out of it. Now, I, I know we're going to eventually talk about what you're doing today, but I, I think we'll spend a little bit of time maybe talking about your business attentively. Maybe you could give us a little bit of background on the business to kick us off. Sure, absolutely. So Attentively was a tech startup uh, that focused on marketing automation, social listening, and influencer engagement for causes and campaigns. And you might say, oh, well, that sounds great, a SaaS, but you know, how much do nonprofits really you know, consume? Well, here, at least in the United States, it's an $800 billion a year consumer of products and services. So the nonprofit sector that we were targeting, you know, is actually a significant uh, a financial resource. Wow, that's a massive market. And, and look, and I, I couldn't tell you off the bat what the size of that market is in Australia, but I do know it's very, very large as well. So what does that mean? Talk us a little bit through how, you know, social influencing and the marketing and how does that sort of generally work? It's, uh, 
I know enough about SaaS to be dangerous. Um, so, so I, yeah, can you help us understand that a bit more? Sure. Well, I mostly got my mom to understand it, so I'll I'll try. But, <laughs> but basically, you know, we built a dashboard, uh, and people could import. Uh, you know, our our uh, customers could import lists, their email lists of supporters or donors, and then match to publicly available social media data understand, you know, wow, you know, here are the top 10% of our influencers that were just lurking in our list. And I'll tell you, for especially the major nonprofits that we work with, or, or larger candidates, uh, we almost always found famous people, almost always found famous people who'd given like, you know, $100 or $25 or responded to our petition. And of course, you know, this is someone who can potentially have a whole other impact and, and be an ally in a completely different way. And this is de rigueur in the corporate marketing space. As you know, influencer engagement is, you know, a like billion dollar industry around the world. And yet, it, at least here in the United States, the nonprofit sector very much behind in terms of understanding, you know, the new power of individuals online. Wow. Okay. So if I understand this correctly, so you've got all these um, not-for-profits, they've got big email lists, they've been good at building that over the years. And I guess you're the kind of bridge and you're filling the gap between, well, yeah, you've, all you've got is an email and maybe a name and a phone number over here, but actually this is their world socially on platforms and what they're doing out there. This is their sphere of influence. Exactly. Exactly. This is their sphere of influence, you know, on which platform, how many people do they reach? You know, you want to talk, for example, about climate change. That's great. But here's the language that they're using to talk about these issues. You know, don't you want to use those same hashtags to talk to your audience, you know, and get your message a little further faster? Wow, that's huge. Because, you know, I, I know even in our business, you know, trying to connect the dots with all these different platforms and pieces of information out there and it, it that's that's extraordinarily difficult so that's you know we found it extraordinarily difficult so that's that's amazing congratulations on on a a brilliant idea but clearly clearly a successful one as well well thank you well i wish i could say i came up with it all by myself you know i had a business partner but at the same time it was really applying technology that we could see was happening in the corporate sphere you know to a sector you know that had uh, some somehow overlooked it which is often as you know simon where the best ideas come they come when you see you know a problem and you notice there might be a solution yeah cool and so you've built this platform and just to sort of understand or round out my understanding of the product here, it's so. Did you then? Are you integrating with the customers' CRMs and stuff like that to be able to access their data? And then is that is that how it kind of works? Simon, did you actually work at Attentively? Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for a job. Actually, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> no, that's that's exactly you described it exactly how it worked, and you know this was really important in terms of you know, providing tools that our uh, our customers could use themselves. However, about 25 percent of our uh, uh, clients were agencies themselves. So this came out. The idea for Attentively actually came out of our agency at the time. Uh, it was a digital agency, again, serving causes, campaigns, candidates, et cetera. And you know, we could see you know, having our foot in the world of both technology and marketing, but also 
uh, nonprofits and causes that, you know, there were different tools being used in different spaces. And so we wanted to bring the tools that corporate marketers were using, you know, to the, the causes sector, you know, tailored in a way that made sense to them uh, and at a price point they could afford and integrated into the tools that they use. And look, you know, being trying to be smart about it, we actually uh, had our exit strategy as we were starting the business. We, oh, wow. we knew, yep. yeah, which is like, really, you know, are you really, pl- are you really playing this game? Right. I think a lot of people go into business and think, especially with a tech startup, you know, they, they may not have an exit plan. You know, they're, they're, they're just thinking like, I just want to get this up and running and, you know, maybe we'll IPO. Maybe. Okay. But that's actually pretty rare. Most, if you're successful with a startup, as you know, Simon, you know, with a tech startup, at least, uh, most, the most, most likely you're going to get acquired. And so we knew that by uh, seeking out strategic partnerships with the major CRMs in our space, by making sure it was really easy to plug and play their software with ours, you know, that, that we would get on their radar. Most acquirers really want to get to know the company. It's, it's not just the bits and bytes. It's also the relationship. Um, and so that's how we were acquired. We were acquired ultimately by one of our strategic partners. And what they noticed was that a third of our customers were also their customers. And it, that was a sign that, you know, there was a market there, you know, that, that we were providing a solution that their clients really wanted. Yeah, fabulous. Um, man, there is so much to unpack here. Um, I'm, this is cool. I want to come back to the, to, you know, the buyer and how you worked with the NFPs. And, and um, for what it's worth, I, I sat on the board of a not-for-profit here for about five years. And I just, I found traditionally they are quite... I won't say resistant to change. It's more that they're always struggling for capital. And so investing in new things is, was always a challenge. Um, but, you know, be- before I get into that, I- I've got to take it almost back a step here because you've touched on something that's dear to my heart around having an exit plan and and starting with the end in mind. So you, you mentioned you had a, a business partner, a co-founder at the time? Yes. Yes, I had a co-founder. Uh, her name was Roz Lemieux. And she had been my co-founder with the then uh, digital agency and then, of course, the tech startup as well. Yeah, cool. Okay, so you had a little bit of history. You, you, were, you, you know, you're obviously friends, you get along. Did, did you, um, you know, when you started this, the first time you guys went into business together, was it, um, I'm just curious about how these things evolve. I've seen everything on the spectrum, right? The good, the bad, the ugly. Friends going to business, it's just amazing. We always knew we'd work well together because we just get along so well to the, hey, we were really good friends and really we shouldn't have done business together because, you know, it went the other way. And did you guys have discussions or talk about what what was that like at the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I did know Roz um, before. Um, I knew of her, though, really. You know, we weren't necessarily friends. And I do think that it's it's difficult to go into business with a really, really good friend unless you are both, you know, very emotionally centered and, you know, are doing the work, okay, on the relationship. It's really challenging. I think it does help if there's at least starting off a little difference. You know, what uh, happened, what happened was, Simon, uh, in American, uh, I had been recruited here to the San Francisco Bay Area from Washington, D.C. by a major uh, PR company with they have uh, branches in 80 different countries. Uh, and they wanted me to reignite 
the West Coast practice, digital practice. Uh, you know, happy to do it. Sounded interesting and cool. I've always wondered about the West Coast. When I got out here, I could see why they took all the trouble of importing me from one end of the country to the other. You know, it was the kind of gig that in the San Francisco Bay Area, like, you know, you know there's so many other amazing, exciting things you could do, like, doing that, you know, was not the most exciting. But, you know, I busted my ass. I worked really hard. I had a uh, a, a promotion built into my offer letter that when it was time did not come. And I actually, yeah, and I had, I actually gave them, you know, a, a beautiful list. Look, if we hire the following people, if we do the following things, I can bring in a million dollars in revenue next year. They thought that was crazy. So I quit. I was like, if you're not going to, you know, if you're not going to honor your promises, if you're not, you know, if you don't believe in the, you know, amazing work that I've been doing, like I'm, you know, I just did the math in my head. I'm pretty sure I can scratch up enough work on my own to do just fine. So uh, the power of a network, uh, I actually sent out a tweet. And at that point, you know, I had also some micro celebrity, you know, from my uh, thought leadership, writing, blogging. I sent out a tweet the next day that said, who wants to work with me? I find myself Gosh. suddenly available. <laughs> uh, 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 and from that, I actually got a lot of incoming Simon. And one of them was the boyfriend, now husband of um, my business partner who said, hey, you know, my girlfriend, you know, he was actually a very close friend. He was like, hey, my girlfriend uh, is doing this thing. I think that you guys, you know, would would work well together. And so we said, well, let's date before we business marry. You know, we we did a project together. And, you know, it was like, it was like she completed me. Like we were yin and yang. Like all of the things I hate doing, she loved doing, vice versa. Here's how I knew it was magic. I knew it was magic when we were on the phone and I was describing a thing. And by the time I finished describing it, she had built it in a spreadsheet. <laughs> she sounds like a whiz. <laughs> so magical. Yes. So, magical. so yeah, cool. I would definitely, you know, caution you, like, have your cousin not be your first choice of a business partner. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. No, well, that sounds like you've come together, you know, and there's nothing like, a, I think, a third person who knows you both to go, yeah, I see something here, you know. It's, uh, yeah, and I guess you come in, come into it with your eyes open, right, rather than the kind of rose-coloured glasses of a friendship or something like that. So, Or even just the higher expectations. I think we actually have higher expectations of those who are close to us and just, get you know, jump to, like, you're doing it because you're always lazy like this, as opposed to, like, hey, you know, more objective, like, is something, pre what's preventing you from being successful? Yeah, it's the work hat versus the friends hat, right? It's uh, yeah, that's interesting. And and so from that conversation, how how long did it sort of take you guys to kind of get up and running and get things moving, get your first customer, all that sort of stuff? Well, we weren't starting with a you know a huge bank account. I think we both had ten thousand dollars in the bank, American dollars. And I said, look, if we don't have clients by the end of this month, I have to go out and get a jobity job because this is like all of the money. <laughs> at that time, <laughs> you know, it was some years ago. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you know, we hustled hard and we had, you know, three or four clients by the end of that month. And within wow. a year, uh, not only, um, you know, had we uh, quintupled in size, we, there, we started with two people, we had 10 people on staff at the end of the year, but we had booked that million dollars in revenue on projects that were near and dear to my heart. How important is it to you? I mean, in terms of your energy levels, in terms of how 
I guess, influential, you know, you are in your own role to be doing the work you love? To me, it's really important. It's our waking hours, you know, and it doesn't feel as much like work if it's something you love doing. And so I think no matter what you do, some of the happiest people I've known have been tax attorneys, like for whatever reason. And I remember, you know, it was actually my, um, one of my best friend's dads growing up was a tax attorney and he loved his job. And he was like, Cheryl, you know, it always changes. And there's a lot of history in taxes. You know, there's a lot of social engineering that's happening. There's, you know, all this, you know, math and, you know, well, at least American taxes are pretty complicated. Like, you know, he loved his job. Like, yeah. you know, and that was really inspiring to me that, you know, I wanted to love my job, whatever it was as much as he did. And what I tell young people now, and, and you know, y'all listening, some of you might be young or starting over in the pandemic, maybe you're, you're young at heart. Uh, you know, the job that I have, the, the roles that I play, there was no major for it in university. There was, it didn't exist. My job did not exist. Like, like technical services, <laughs> using the internet, for yeah. nonprofit, it wasn't a thing. Like no one was doing that. The web, the World Wide Web even wasn't really online. So, you know, I what I tell people is like the, the thing that you are destined to do might not exist now. And that's okay. You know, follow the, the your passions, the things that you love, put on a layer of technology, because that's going to be important no matter what you do. And you might find that you end up with a cohort of other people like I did, creating our jobs and then creating jobs for a whole bunch of other people. Yeah, that's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. It's, um, you know, I, I remember a, a family mentor of mine, a, somebody who's like a father to me as well. I love him dearly. But uh, he, I, I always remember him saying to me when I was in high school, do the, do the work you love and you'll never work in a day in your life. You know, just and and I, I remember getting trying to get my head around that at the time. I was like, yeah, I mean, you know, you kind of understand it from a basic level, but I think you got to kind of work a few crappy jobs before you really feel that. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and have some terrible managers and be like, oh, I want to be the opposite of this. Yeah, <laughs> I've learned absolutely. from this. I want to be not you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's funny because everybody at our team, we were our team's about ten people as well, but. Pretty much everyone on our team is what we call a corporate SKP. Um, you know, we, the, the little joke is sometimes you've got to kind of work in a place to work out what you don't want for the rest of your life. And so, and that's not to say all corporates are bad. They're not. They just, you know, they're big and they've got to manage lots of stuff. But it just, you know, obviously it works for some and not for others. <laughs> Indeed. And look, there, you know, if you're inside a corporation now or, or you know, a, a decent sized business, you know, you can still be, you know, what we call an intrapreneur. You know, you can start your side hustle uh, as we call it, uh, here where, you know, you're, you're starting your, you know, your next thing, you're starting your transition, you're getting your business plan together, your pitch deck, you're looking at funding and financing and team composition, even while you're working your job. Or if you love your corporation, like IBM, I've had a lot of friends and family work at IBM and IBM to their credit, there's a reason it's over a hundred years old. You know, they're constantly reinventing and they're very good at taking someone and having them have a very, you know, a varied career, even within the same large company. So, you know, they really reward entrepreneurship and encouraging people, you know, to see themselves as entrepreneurs within a larger context. So I think especially now, 
you know, when a lot of people are dragging themselves to work and, you know, from their bedroom <laughs> to the other room, you know, <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. a time when, you know, if, if you are bringing to the table fresh ideas and energy, you know, excitement, uh, vision, you know, people are, are ready, ready for leadership. Yeah, that's some, that's some great advice, uh, Cheryl. I'm, yeah, I think there'll be a lot of people nodding their heads right now. To, to take me take me forward a little bit more. I, you know, so I'm I'm going for my own little experience here. So I've you know five years on the on the board of a of an NFP and and understand the struggles of trying to raise money and try you you want to do amazing things and change the world, but man, it is hard. Um, and we even had some big partnerships, which I won't go into a name all here, but it just even with those some of those big names, we found it really hard. So. I'm curious, did you find when you were talking to NFPs, was there generally sort of, was it, was it hard to get your solution embedded into their, into their businesses or, you know, are they a little bit more advanced over in the US? Well, in terms of your NFP, are you talking about wheelchair rugby? Yeah, that's right. Wow, you've really done your homework here. <laughs> that's what an amazing, I mean, what an amazing cause. I can only imagine those games sound amazing. So I'm kind of jealous. And thank you for, you know, giving yourself to such an amazing cause. Uh, yes, it was very much an educational sale, you know, to answer your your actual question. We found that, you know, again, because influencer engagement and marketing was relatively new to the causes sector and still is 10 years later, believe it or not, you know, it's still a concept people are embracing. Yeah, we definitely had to coach people, you know, explain it to them. We did a lot of demos. I already had a thought leadership platform. I did a lot of talking and still do, uh, you know, about, you know, how influencer engagement you know, can be transformative, as you saw, you know, it's a partnership, like, like many others, it's just a different kind. So yes, so that, then, you know, when you have a a longer sales cycle, you know, that certainly has an impact on your runway, uh, for sure. And we had to program that in. But over time, you know, our reputation, reputation is so important. You know, what I tell people is I, you know, would not have been able to start my businesses without my relationships, damn sure couldn't have kept them without those relationships, okay? And so, you know, as the reputation of the company, you know, spread, you know, in a relatively, you know, we were, even though we were small, we were highly visible, in part because we were female technologists, uh, in part because it was a very new technology for the sector, um, in part just of, of who we were, um, you know, as leaders um, within that sector. That really helped, you know, being able to deliver a great product um, that that we spent a lot of time talking about made a big difference. Yeah, no, that's that's really cool. It's um, yeah, so it's it's such a, a fascinating um, a fascinating area and understanding how this is evolving. It's I, I know we tried very hard to kind of get certain you know ex rugby league players and stuff like that to be a part of it, but there was always this missing bridge, which it sounds like that's what attentively was. What what did the um what did the model look like? I mean, I think most people, when they hear SaaS, they think monthly subscriptions or annual subscriptions and stuff like that. Was that is that have I got that right? Absolutely. We pricing is always tough 
you know, as you know, uh, for especially when you're you're in that very, you know, alpha beta mode, you know, how do, how do we price this? And we definitely had multiple schemes. Uh, I would say we first did monthly and then we found economically because of the educational, you know, nature of the sale and because it, it takes time. You know, it really takes three months, as you know, for any kind of digital campaign to, you know, it's a cumulative effect. So we just found that annual subscriptions, just locking them in giving us plenty of time to show um, how dope the product was. Uh, you know, that, that helped our bottom line, but it also helped with retention and support of the customers. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's a period here where people go through the whole buyer's remorse and they're not sure and they're kind of working out the new language. So, so you, basically you've bought yourself some time to demonstrate and prove the product. Exactly. And whenever people used it, you know, they saw amazing results, of course. You know, if you reach out to the people who are most passionate about your work and who can reach hundreds of thousands to millions more people than you, yeah, you're probably going to be able to make something happen. So, uh, you know, it, it was a really exciting uh, and tumultuous <laughs> uh, adventure to be on. I actually wrote a book about it uh, called Mechanical Bull how you can achieve startup success. It has been an Amazon bestseller. Uh, I, we're coming out with a second edition with a little more pandemic related content. And uh, we're going to do the audiobook uh, for those of you who like to listen uh, out cool. there. You're listening right now. Uh, and, you know, I wrote the book that I wish that I had had starting out. And it really goes through the life cycle um, of the of a startup, which is usually about five to 10 years for a, a tech startup, at least, and including exits. There's a whole chapter that's just on investor relations and exiting and the whole M&A process. You know, and the reason I wrote it, the other reason was that, you know, after we sold the business in July 2016, a friend sat me down and said, Cheryl, more people have been to the moon from America than have done what you have done. 17 people apparently have been to the moon. Just one woman who has done what you have done. Attentively, as a tech startup, is the first tech startup with a black female founder on board to have been acquired by a NASDAQ company, a NASDAQ trading wow. company, Blackbot. So, yeah, a pretty, a pretty big deal. So, you know, I hope that that people, if you know, if you're about to launch a business or you're, you know, knee deep in it right now, you know, my book is hopefully a fun, uh, but also a rich resource for you. That's fabulous, Cheryl. I mean, clearly you're a, you're a bit of a trailblazer here. So, and and we'll put some links in the show notes to the to the book Mechanical Bull. So, so suggest everybody go out there and grab a copy of that because I'm sure it'll be a fantastic read, and I'll be doing the same. So. You know, sp speaking to those people doing those tech startups, um, you know, come back to the, I'd like to come back to the point of your, your model for a second, because you, you made an interesting point about switching to annual and how that helps cash flow. Because I, I just imagine, you know, and certainly people I've spoken to say when they're starting a SaaS business, you know, they're generally burning a lot of cash at first before those monthly subscriptions get to a point where they're breaking even and then, of course, making profit. So it was that part of the decision that you made as well? That was definitely part of it. I mean, certainly, you know, getting more cash in early, uh, the better so that we could continue to, to make payroll. Uh, and, you know, what, we've, what I have found is, you know, under 10 people, payroll is a thing, right? Like just making sure, do we have enough 
Uh, over 10 or 12 people, payroll is not like the main issue. Like you're, you're going to make payroll. There's other problems, problems, new problems to face. So, you know, we wanted to make sure, you know, and, and there were times when people got paid, you know, before we did, you know, we made sure we took care of our people for sure. But yeah, absolutely. That was a big part of it. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's um, you know, making sure people have got enough runway to kind of get to that point is is interesting, and then that's why people raise funds and do all these sort of fabulous things. But uh, that's cool. And so, so from startup to selling in twenty sixteen, how long was that? Uh, we really got started around twenty ten. 2011, we bootstrapped the product internally at Fission with just excess developer hours. But then it just became clear, you know, we had some of our uh, clients as customers of Attentively, you know, for the agency, but it was clear that to really take off, it needed its own team, it needed its own structure, needed its own leadership. So that's when uh, I started the process of fundraising for the business. And at the time, you know, you know, we existed in, you know, a, a milieu of people doing the same work. Uh, and many of them launched their own startups. But what I didn't realize, at least myself at the time, was that most of those were white guys. And their experience fundraising was very different from mine. So and I didn't really know how different until many, many years later. So, you know, even though I have this micro celebrity, you know, I'm on TV, I've already created my business partner, I have already created a multi-million dollar revenue company. Okay, like, I've already done that, we're about to do it again. Yeah. You know, it was very difficult. You know, I was used to people taking my calls or, you know, having meetings with me. And, you know, I got a lot of pushback. And I'm now an advisor on a number of funds um, that invest um, in women-led tech startups. And, you know, one of them told me, look, Cheryl, we worked really hard to weed out as much of the bias in our system as possible because we want more black and brown female funders to get funded, you know, by our, our, our angels. And they said, you know, we, we got there except when it came to writing checks. It's really hard to get people to write checks. And they said, it takes us seven introductions to funders, to investors, to get a white female founder funded. It takes us 50, five, zero, almost 10 on average to get a black female entrepreneur funded. And when she said that, I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. I probably like in my head, Simon, I'm just that kind of entrepreneur. Like in my head at some point, I just was like, this is a numbers game and I'm just going to have to talk to a lot of people to get, but yeah, I mean, so that's really inefficient and stupid, right? Like, you know, you're already talking about a group of people who, you know, have worked really hard to get where they are against a lot of odds and a lot of prejudices. And then it's like, you know, literally 10 times the effort to get less money, to get, to get less money. So, uh, you know, it's a problem when you talk about women, I don't know the statistics for Australia, I imagine they're not that different, but here in the States, something like only two to four percent of venture capital of any kind precede all the way through Series D. Two to four percent goes to female founders of businesses, even though, again, I don't know about Australia, but in America, women buy literally 75 to 85 percent of everything. 
That just doesn't make any sense, Simon. That's some 19th century bull hockey, okay? Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, so look, here's what, you know, what I hope if you're, you know, planning to buy, grow, and sell, you know, I I think the dynamics are probably similar uh, around the world, which is that, you know, you want diversity on your team, diversity of skill sets, diversity of backgrounds, uh, you know, diversity of worldviews. It just makes you richer. All of the studies show that diverse-led firms are more innovative, they are more productive, and they are more profitable, which is the NASDAQ. We mentioned that. I don't know if your listeners are aware, but the NASDAQ recently now requires all NASDAQ-listed companies to have diverse boards. If they don't get a diverse board, they're going to get kicked off the NASDAQ. And that's not nice. You might think, oh, virtue signaling, culture war, isn't that sweet? No, it's because they actually have also seen the data that says the diverse-led firms actually perform better. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny, isn't it? It's, it's this question out there, and we've had a very similar thing um, in Australia around women on boards. Um, it's been quite a big initiative. Um, and, and of course, the the big debate has been to have quotas or not have quotas. And I think certainly people, you know, have share my opinion on this sort of stuff. I'd like to think that quotas aren't necessary. <laughs> you want to be able to say, hey, male, female, race, whatever, let's make sure that the best candidate has the job. And as I've had a few people say to me, Simon, Mate, that's lovely, and I'm sure you probably be like that. But that's not how it works. People just they they have biases, and sometimes they don't even realise they've got them. And you know, we keep pushing the message for women on boards, and it's we've made incremental little steps as opposed to the kind of larger steps that everybody kind of thought we'd be at by now, anyway. And so, to I think to add additional layers around whether it's race and whatever else that these things makes what is already a complex issue even more complex. So I, I think I think I'm I've probably come around somewhat to the point of, you know, some people will just never get it unless you force them to. So now you've got a quota. <laughs> well, right. And I, I think from the NASDAQ standpoint, you know, it's it's I would say it's a soft quota. They're not telling you exactly how to diversify your board, but they're like, look, this is what a diverse board is gonna look like. It's gonna have people of different sexual orientations and different ethnicities and probably different genders because there's more than one gender <laughs> in the world and one of those gender buys all of the things. So like you might want to get their input. Uh, yeah. yeah here's, <laughs> oh here's a crazy yeah. thought. Maybe your board should reflect your society. Oh, or your on. customer base. Like <laughs> yeah. what a crazy idea. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think, you know, it's a soft quota, but you know, it is a quota just because I, I think Simon, some people, they need the push and they also need guidance. You know, some people just are, you know, they're linear thinkers, you know, you and I are relationship people, you know, I, we're probably both network thinkers. Not everyone is like that. And, you know, again, I, I can really only speak to the United States, but the other challenge is that people don't always have diverse networks. And so they're not really sure they have to put in extra effort. And in order to put in that extra effort, you have to push them. Something like 75% of American white people don't actually know a person of color. Wow. As a friend, wow. I know that's pretty crazy, right? 
That's yeah. insane. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty crazy. So then you can see why then it, it makes it challenging where they're like, oh, well, I guess these were the best candidates because those were the ones I could find. It's like, yeah, but there's other people out there like that you haven't talked to. These aren't actually the best people. These are the best people that you know, you know, yeah. or that people you know know. These aren't the yeah, best yeah, people yeah. at all. It's, it's the best person you can see once you've applied your various filters. <laughs> you know. Yeah, once you have done the minimum, once you have done the minimum that you normally do, and yet actually what I would challenge folks to say is that to get to excellence, you know, you've got to blow those barn doors open. Absolutely, yeah. Well, look, and, and you know, don't be afraid of change, right? That's a really almost dumb thing to say because people are inherently afraid of change. You know, you and I were talking about lizard brains before. I mean, you know, um, you know that, and that's the part of the brain that makes people, you know, fight or flight, right? So I, I think being willing to, you know, take on people who have a different perspective and seeing it for the strength rather than it being a weakness. And, you know, as you've said, I mean, there's so much statistics about this stuff now that it's proven to deliver better results. So yeah, look, hey, we're we're an amazing time in history, right? It's uh, it's we're going to continue seeing change, and one day we'll look back and go, wow, yeah, people really did stuff like that. That's really crazy. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, I'm just you know, here are the two things that I say. You know, when logic leaves the room, you know that some nonsense like racism, misogyny, like some weird gay stuff that you have hangups about, like some nonsense has entered the room. Okay. So that's, if you, if you, if you're in a room and you're like, this, this doesn't make any sense. So know that that's happening. People don't come out as much. Well, nowadays some people feel more free, but generally speaking people, especially if they're, if it's a bias that they don't realize they have, right. But all of a sudden, like the conversation gets weird, you know, but the other thing, the, the flip side of that is return on investment, ROI. ROI, if you want ROI, you need DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, period, especially in this time, because yes, things are changing. You need people in your leadership, for example, who aren't the same generation as you. Right. Yeah, and you yeah. need, right. I mean, you need to be able to, you know, look both ahead and behind in order to respond to a very volatile, you know, and fluid situation that we're living in, no matter what your sector. So, you know, I think that it's really important to, you know, not imagine you yourself is the customer, you know, you yourself is not your employees, right? You are not the ultimate decider you need to be able to hear from other perspectives in order to you know synthesize enough data to make the best decisions that are going to make you the money and success you want well said well said i i could keep talking to you all day so i i'm gonna have to fast forward a little bit to your exit because uh people will hang me out to dry if i don't <laughs> you you said something which i do love that you set out to build the company to exit one day it's funny because I've had lots of coffees with people in startup mode and, and it, I think nobody truly understands the need to um, start with the end in mind and work towards an exit more than a tech entrepreneur. <laughs> you know, that, that is, there's just something about tech. They go, I, I have to sell one day. <laughs> so you obviously had that in your mind. That was the framework that, um, that you and Rosalind had, had put together. How did you know, like when you're on that journey, I think you said it was about six, six odd years or so, how did you know that it was time to start having those conversations? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, well, for every at least tech 
entrepreneur faces a, a but often non-tech faces a decision at some point where you say, okay, we could either raise another round of funding, we can do a Series A or Series B, you know, you know wherever we are, or bridge, depending on how bad things are, uh, <laughs> or yeah. we can sell. It takes about the same amount of time. It's conventional wisdom is six to 12 months to raise around six to 12 months to sell. So, you know, we were at that crossroads, right? Where we had, you know, you know, we had strong revenue, but as you mentioned for startups, you know, there's, you know, there's always burn um, with a tech startup. It takes a while for you to really get to break even. Um, Although we did get to break even a couple of times. Um, So yeah, we're, we're looking at our runway and saying, well, you know, we could raise another round, but here are the other factors surrounding us. Um, things were changing, like GDPR was going to impact, you know, the types of data, you know, that we would really even have access to and how all the APIs were working. You know, there were, you know, all kinds of, you know, other, you know, competition that was rising um, around us. We had squashed our initial competition, but some bigger players, again, had noticed what we were doing and were trying to you know, get those. So we said, eh, you know, is this, is this a time like this is, we always knew that this was the type of software that would really need to get plugged into something else, um, you know, to, to have its full fruition, you know, let's, let's run a process, you know, let's see. So we interviewed, uh, M&A bankers. That was really weird. Uh, <laughs> I was super pregnant at the time. So that wow. you know, added a, a whole other frisson to the process, uh, which was a, a really a, a good test. I mean, you know, we were different than, you know, a lot of the startups that they were used to working with and, you know, how they treated us, you know, in that difference, like this is coming in a different package, you know, because that person your M&A person is going to have conversations that you're not in. They have to represent you. They have to be you in those conversations. And if they're not, you know, really tuned into you, you know, your value system, you know, how you think, like, it's just not going to be as good a deal as, as it could be. So, you know, we were really looking for that, you know, not exactly kindred soul, but, you know, someone who could really got us. And uh, we found that in Trisha Salinero, you know, who, um, runs Woodside Capital, highly recommend them. Um, although I hear you might run a pretty good exit uh, for Well, we, we <laughs> do our best. But, you know, I, <laughs> you know, Cheryl, one thing that, I, that does really resonate with me there is that, um, you know, I think there's a lot of businesses out there that play the volume game, right? Like, yeah, we'll just take on all the work and, you know, some of these things will sell. Um, I, I, I think we're the complete opposite. And I said so what you said really resonated in that, we don't want to take on lots. We want to take on businesses that we fundamentally believe in, you know, and often that comes down to a bit of a connection with the founder or the, the current owner. And, and as many of my clients would attest, I always saying to them, look, I need to know your business well enough that I can look a buyer in the eye, put my hand on my heart and say, listen, you know, no business is perfect, but this business is really great and there's some really good value in it and there's some amazing stuff here and give me some time and I'll explain why. You know, I want to explain, you know, talk about this business as if it's my own. And if you don't think you can do that, if you don't feel a connection to that business enough to put yourself forward like that, then don't take it on, you know, because you're not the right person. Exactly. And and if you're on the other side, if you're the founder, you know, or the CEO or the COO, 
Right. I mean, you've got a vibe with that person. Like if you don't have a, you know, some kind of vibe, some kind of connection, shared understanding, it's just, it's just going to be an even more painful process. Cause let me tell you, due diligence, uh, (laughs) (laughs) how I describe it, you know, what is it? Adamantine, like the things that they, the the metal they put inside Wolverine, you know, in his flashback, he's screaming because that's, (laughs) it's really painful, but it's making him stronger. Yeah. Due diligence is like that. (laughs) Like that, it's like someone that is a, doing that yeah. to you. That is a great analogy. Yeah. So you know you want right. So you want to have somebody you you really you know have some kind of tr- trust level with, and who's gonna you know give it to you straight. You know uh, because it's it's a tough. It's definitely you know it's in its own microcosm, like its own little mechanical bowl uh, of of the of the startup trajectory. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And so, and and is that how long it took for you guys to get your deal done from the when you started having conversations? What what did that look like? Yeah, I would say it was roughly. You know, I don't remember the exact time frame. I should, but yeah, it was definitely at least eight or nine months. Um, you know, to actually, you know, from start, like we're interviewing, you know, M and A folks. You know, we're getting, we're starting to run the process. We're having conversations too. You know, we're 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 signing a check is in my bank. Yeah, yeah, that's funny because you just reminded me of my wife, um, who we have two beautiful boys, and uh, I, I always remember this conversation after our first, where her and her girlfriends were all talking about how they couldn't really remember a lot of the birth and all this sort of stuff. And they're like, yeah, man, this is something about our genetics. I think it just blocks out some of that painful stuff. And so you just all you remember is the good things or the. I, I think it's always the same, right? I can't really remember it was six to 12 months. My brain's just telling me, you know, you've got to just bury some of that stuff in the back and let it go. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, running a business is so, it's really, especially, a, I would say, a tech startup. Like the agencies, of course, you know, that I've run in other businesses, those have been challenging too. But there's something about a t- tech startup. It is, it's the reason I named it Mechanical Bull. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a wild ride. Um, but you know, you learn so much and look, at least in the United States, something like 90% of startups fail in their first year. And of those that succeed, 90% of those fail by their third year. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, there's a lot of failure, but you are not a failure. You know, there's so many reasons why a business might go under that have nothing to do with your vision, your solution, your passion, your drive, your hard work and any savvy uh, employer knows that. And so, you know, I think that that's what holds a lot of people back, um, particularly women, I think, because they, you know, we're often very visible and we don't want to fail because other people look up to us and like, ah, you're not going to fail. Okay. Like, you know, you, I feel like I have a PhD in business now that I have a startup. And even if we had failed, you know, I, you know, you're qualified for a higher level position, a more executive level position because you have been behaving as an executive and any smart uh, company will understand that. I applaud that. I think that's absolutely spot on and an amazing advice for a lot of people. It's, you know, it's funny when you've been a business owner and you've gone through and had to make the kind of decisions you've had to make, you, you, you are galvanized, you know, against a lot of other problems and you think differently from then on. So I, I completely agree with you. I mean, it's, you know, and let's be honest, I mean, we, you know, we learn more from our, I'll, I'll say, use the word failures, but the things that go wrong, we learn more from that stuff than we do from the time that we 
kind of made it happen on the first go. And we thought, oh, geez, I'm special, aren't I? Just look how good I am, you know. I, that just all just worked. Actually, might have had very little to do with me. It could have just been timing and luck, but, you know. Um, so, yeah, we do learn from those experiences. And I think that's, um, you know, I think for anyone out there who's doing it tough, I think that's, t- take that to heart because I think that's really, really solid advice. Um, Cheryl, can I ask you, and, and I don't want to tread on anything that might be confidential, so please just, you know, I'll be guided by you here. But um, I, I'm always fascinated with, you know, interested in maybe how big the business got when you did sell, if you can talk about that. But I'm, I'm really interested in how people come up with their number, right? Or how a buyer comes up with a number, but also how the, how the, the, the business owner, the entrepreneur comes up with their number. And, you know, and I think we've talked on this show a lot about, oh, well, it was a multiple of EBITDA or it was a multiple of revenue and so on. But what was the mechanism and how people came up with it? I'm always fascinated with that. So I, I don't know. Can you share anything around that? Sure. Well, because you, you know, you've been doing this for a while, you know that a number is what a company is willing to pay for another company at the end of the day. Totally. Okay. And what a company is willing to sell for. Uh, so, yeah, we certainly had, um, you know, we knew how much our investors had put in. We wanted to make sure that they got, you know, a, a decent return. Because, again, even though, you know, we were small, uh, you know, attentively, it was no more than maybe 14 people. Um, you know, when we, you know, were acquired, you know, we were highly visible. You know, there were all kinds of articles written about us. You know, we did. So like we knew that people were watching um, and that we were in a lot of ways proof of concept. You know, can you invest in a team that looks really different, you know, in in a, the tech space and have a really good result? Um, so that was important to us, you know get our investors money back with a little bit of extra. Uh, We wanted to make some money uh, as well. That was important to us. But, you know, we also were running up against runway. Like we really wanted to sell. That was very important. Uh, So, you know, you factor all of those things in, you know, and there's some negotiation, you know, there's, you know, numbers, you know, get tossed back and forth. And and it's not just about the numbers, though. You know, we wanted to negotiate a, a good, um, you know, exit and entrance into the new company for our team, you know, making sure they had um, new positions and new salaries and and uh, stock options, all that good stuff, you know, good benefits, you know, as they were coming in and, you know, a, an idea of how the team would function, uh, you know, the trajectory, the roadmap that our software was going to fit in, all of those things. It shouldn't be just about the money. You know, I think, um, that at the same time, people often talk about their businesses like they're, they're your babies, you know, and it's not your baby. OK, like it's 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 more like a house. You know, it's something that you love. You know, it's personal to you, but ultimately it's an investment, you know, that you're going to sell and you're going to hand off to some lucky person someday. So uh, I think that was, you know, how how we came around to it was understanding that, but also yeah, it's knowing, fe- feeling, feeling that it was right and it was time, and that yeah. and we were going to get a decent price. That and, that, and that's cool because I, I, you know, I speak to a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs, and and so many times they kind of it's almost a little bit of a thumb to the wind and go, oh well, I believe that I'm a five times revenue because I'm a whatever, and and, and okay, we're, we're all going to be influenced by things that we hear in the market. Um, but let's be honest, like those sort of things are, are so isolated in terms of, you know, you don't know the dynamics around why that other business was a five times whatever. But I, I kind of like your approach here because you've you've kind of 
layered it. You've stacked it up and gone, well, there's this element, there's the investors, there's the staff, there's all these different things that are important to us. Some of them, by the sounds of things, weren't just financial. Um, and I guess as you start to layer those through, you start to build a bit of an idea of what a number or a good number would look like for you and your exactly. stakeholders. And you know what I came with all of that, plus one to all of that, Simon, what I would say is, you know, again, I'm speaking of the context here in the States, but this is probably true of a lot of places. Uh, you know, there's basically four different types of acquisitions, right? There's the aqua hire, meaning you get almost nothing, but you maintain your dignity, which and there's no <laughs> yeah. price on dignity, Simon. Okay. Yep. And then there's new car, new house, don't have to work again for the rest of your life. And most acquisitions, especially of first tech startups, are in those first three, okay? Aqua hire, new car, new house, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. You have succeeded where most people have failed, okay? Absolutely. Hopefully, you know, you've got a little bit of extra capital that you didn't have before. You have an amazing story to tell and accomplishment in your career. Like, you know, that's, you know, most people aren't going to IPO. Most people aren't going to, you know, sell for some like crazy amount of money and that's okay. It's yeah, fine. Yeah. It's Indeed. normal and it's natural. Yeah. I think, uh, yes, once again, some great advice there. I mean, as you said, 90% fail in the first year, 90% of the remainder fail in the next three years. That's a small percentage of people who are getting to a point where they can have an exit. So if you're having an exit and somebody else is actually wanting to acquire what you've built, that's a win. That is a win. Um, the rest of it is starting to get down into the detail. <laughs> exactly. Yes, you have won. You, you are the 5% who have prevailed. Yeah. Um, did you have to hang around after, your, after you did the deal? I was the only person who didn't go inside. Uh, they really wanted me, and we might have been able to get a little more if I'd been willing to go in. But I, I need to be free. So uh, I said, look, you know, the, we, you've got a great team. You know, my business partner had been running it day to day. You know, she went internally with the rest of the team. And I said, you know, here's I can I can help you better from the outside. Uh, so I we had a strategic engagement, you know, where I was a strategic advisor for, I think, a, a couple of years. And that was that was cool. Um, yeah. That's fantastic. So. And, and once again, so cognizant of time, and thank you for being so generous um, with us. Can you take a minute, tell us what you're doing today? Ah, so uh, today, uh, I am about to take over the leadership of the Impact Seat Foundation. Uh, the Impact Seat is one of the largest single investors in women-led, especially women of color-led, uh, innovative tech startups in the United States. Uh, as we move into the foundation, we are going to be uh, doing grant making um, and advocacy in order to build a better world and a new economy in which women can succeed in business. So really excited uh, about that. But then I also uh, remain uh, chair and founder of my digital agency, Do Big Things. Uh, Do Big Things is all about providing causes, candidates, campaigns, corporations with the new narrative and new tech for the new era in which we're living today. So we work with all kinds of any kind of issue or movement you can imagine. We have probably been behind the scenes helping out in some way. That is very cool. Do Big Things is a great name. I love it. Um, Cheryl, are you happy for people to like reach out and connect with you? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just tell tell me where you found me. Um, but yeah, find me on LinkedIn. I love to talk to people from all over the world. Uh, you know, you can also find us at uh, impactseat.com or dobigthings.today. Fabulous. Um, we'll make sure we put those links in the show notes. Um, Cheryl, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your beautiful approach to the world and sharing your insights. Um, I just know so many people will get a lot of value out of this episode, and I certainly have. I've really thoroughly enjoyed it. So a really, really lot of gratitude. Thank you. Back at you. You're amazing. Thanks so much, Simon. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.